and welcome back to Fork You's conclusion of the Candyman series. I'm a few days late getting this episode to you, but I blame both 4th of July and the rock candy I was creating. Also, I should go ahead and toss in the new Harry Potter game Wizards Unite into this blame game while I'm admitting my distractions of late. Although, if we're being completely honest, All those things add up to my lateness being my own fault. So, there it is folks. I am to blame. In order to feel truly inspired to finish the series on Dean Coral, I drove a few blocks over from my house to a bar near the location where the Coral Candy Company was located. It also happens to be a location that is an inn for the Wizards Unite game, so I'm able to conquer multiple things at one time on this fine summer day in Houston, Texas. And to be clear, this fine summer day is 98 degrees with a humidity factor that makes it feel like a cool 109 outside, where I am sitting under the fan, of course. I have been reading a lot of personal development books this year and finally succumbed to the fact that in order for me to accomplish my weekly writing goals, I need to not always do them at home. I love my puppy, like, so much. But, as she's walking in while I'm recording holding a toy for me to play with, she can be quite the distraction. So is Wi-Fi and Hulu which is currently streaming all of Veronica Mars in order to prepare for the launch of its comeback season. So needless to say, this heat-filled bar is a far better location for me to type my heart away about sucrose and murder. It doesn't hurt that I'm at a pizza joint that has delicious food and top-notch craft beer so I can truly feel at home here at Mellow Mushroom. 10 out of 10, recommend. The Nashville location is awesome. So I also recommend it Mellow Mushroom there as well, especially on Monday nights because the band that plays is killer. Anywho, back to Dean Coral and his wretched existence. After Coral returned from his time in the army, he began to make friends with many of the young boys in the area who started hanging out around the candy shop. The main friend Coral made was with David Brooks a 12-year-old boy from a broken family who related to Coral and even looked up to him as a father figure in 1967 when they first started becoming close. What a super poor life choice for this young man. We all make poor choices in life, but my goodness was this a really bad one for Brooks. He had no idea what he was getting into and who he was trusting to guide him through his adolescence. A year after building a relationship with Brooks, Coral took over the family candy shop. In that time, Coral and Brooks developed an intimate relationship that went beyond friendship, meaning Coral paid Brooks for sexual favors. That's not candy per se, but some may call it something similar. In 1968, after moving to Colorado, Coral's mother ultimately decided to close down the candy shop, forcing Dean to find new employment as an electrician with Houston Lighting and Power. The job change did not stop the affair between Coral and Brooks. In fact, it escalated by 1970 to a murderous affair. In 1970, the Heights was not the it location to live in that it is today. It was a low-income neighborhood that was already plagued with a decent high crime rate. 
Little did Houston know, it was about to be home to one of the most prolific serial killers in American history, until John Wayne Gacy was caught for 38 known murders in 1978. Coral drove a Plymouth GTX, and Brooks would convince his friends, boys his own age, to come with him and Coral to have a party at Dean's house. They would get in the car and go to the house, thinking that they were going to go partying with drugs and alcohol that they would be unable to get otherwise. These young boys thought they were headed to a good time. Instead, they were gagged and strapped to a torture board. This board was eight feet long, two and a half feet wide, with handcuffs on the corners, which Coral called his procedure board. But since it was clearly a torture board, I refuse to call it by something that downplays what it was used to do to so many innocent people. And on this torture board, they would be raped, tortured, and finally murdered by either strangulation or a gunshot to the head. Coral's first known victim was murdered on September 25, 1970. His name was Jeffrey Conan, and he was an 18-year-old college freshman who was last seen hitchhiking with another student from the University of Texas in Austin, traveling back home to his parents' house in Houston. Conan was dropped off at the corner of Westheimer and Voss, near where Coral was living at the time. Also, kind of close to where I just moved from. It's believed that Coral saw him dropped off and offered to take him to his parents' house. He did not keep that promise. His body was not discovered until August 10, 1973, in High Island Beach on the Boulevard Peninsula. He appeared to have died from asphyxiation from manual strangulation and a cloth gag in his mouth which prevented him from taking in air. This would become Coral's modus operandi. After Conan's death is when Coral brought Brooks into his murderous plots. It was not intended, however. Brooks interrupted Coral at his house while he was assaulting two teenage boys whom he had strapped to his torture boards. In exchange for his silence, Brooks was promised a car. Coral did keep his word here, gifting him a green Chevy Corvette. After the car was given to him, Coral confessed that he had, in fact, murdered the two boys that Brooks had seen, and instead of offering him money for sexual favors, as he had previously done, he offered Brooks $200 for each boy he provided Coral with. This would be $1,265 per victim in today's money. The identifications of those two victims are still unknown to this day. Soon after this, Brooks lured James Glass and Danny Yates, both 14-year-olds, away from a religious rally in the Heights to the Coral House. Glass had been to the house before and had left unharmed. They got high, they drank, and they passed out, only to wake up tied to the torture boards and gagged. A month and a half later, Coral and Brooks saw Donald and Jerry Waldrop walking home after attempting to meet up with a friend to discuss forming a bowling league. They got into Coral's Ford Echoline van and were taken to an apartment that Coral had rented just for such things like torture and murder. During the following three-month period, Coral abducted and killed three more young boys whom all lived in the Heights. 15-year-old Randall Harvey was last seen on his bicycle on March 9, 1971, headed towards Oak Forest for his shift at a gas station. He was killed at the apartment by a gunshot to the head. The other two boys, 
16-year-old Gregory Winkle and 13-year-old David Hillegist were abducted and murdered together on May 29, 1971. All three sets of parents were frantically trying to locate their sons and tried launching investigations into their disappearances with the police, eventually doing it themselves. During that time, a 15-year-old named Elmer Henley, a lifelong friend of Hillegist, had offered to volunteer help look and put up posters for the missing boys. Put a pin in that name because it will matter soon enough. On the fateful day of August 17, 1971, Coral and Brooks encountered one of Brooks' friends, Reuben Haney, walking home from a movie theater when Brooks invited him to a party to a house on San Felipe, where Coral had just relocated to, and he agreed to come hang out. Instead of partying, Haney was strangled to death. A month later, Coral moved back to the Heights. He lived a mere walk from White Oak, a current hub of popular food and drinks for the Heights neighborhood. If you're from the area, Think BB's, Christian's Tailgate, Ritual, Barnaby's, Onion Creek, Tacos A Go-Go, Boyle House, Sonoma, Local Foods, Postino, and probably the most relevant title for this story, Better Luck Tomorrow. The amount of time that I spend near where this murderer lived is very unsettling. While at this address on Columbia Street, Brooks helped Coral abduct and murder two teenage boys who have still been unidentified to this day. They were kept alive for four days, tortured, and raped the entire time before they were finally killed. For those of you keeping count, that brings the number of accounted for murders to 13 young boys between September 1970 and September 1971. Before the intense torture would begin, many of the victims were forced to write letters or postcards and on occasion make a phone call to let their parents know that they were where they were and that they were okay. Due to the location in which these boys lived, the socioeconomic status at the time, these parental contacts and the like, they were all considered runaways at the time. No investigations were started to look for them. Zero investigations. It was just a different time back then. And as such, all these missing boys these current ones I just mentioned, and the ones mentioned as we will continue, became known as the Lost Boys. And as an avid Peter Pan fan, the irony of this nickname is not lost on me. After those 13 murders, Coral recruited another child to help him complete these heinous acts. Wayne Henley had helped look for his missing friend, the one I told you to put a pin in his name earlier, his own friend, one of Coral's victims, a few months before he was personally recruited to help keep this cycle going. Henley was also from the Heights, had a record for assault already, suffered great abuse at the hands of his own father, and was way more brash than Brooks. He too looked to Coral as a father figurehead for support and guidance. At the start of their relationship, Coral told Henley to let him know if he had anything to sell which he could pay him for to help Henley's mother out with bills. This is back when he was helping look for his murdered friend. When Henley was helping look for him, he had no idea that Coral, this man offering to help his family, had a secret life. Instead of starting out with offering him money for sexual favors, he straight up just went ahead and started offering him the same $200 rewards 
that he was offering Brooks to Henley. As a way to lessen the blow and get Henley, who, who was not as close to Coral as Brooks, he told Henley that he was actually working for a white slavery ring. And that is where the boys would be going because somehow that made it better. I don't know. Shortly after being recruited into what he thought was a really cool secret crime ring, Henley was driving around the heights with Coral when he spotted a young boy that he thought could make him an easy $200 cash. They slowed down and asked this stranger if he wanted to go get high with him. He did. And that's where the unidentified man was last seen. Henley got his money one day later. The three of them would wrap the bodies in plastic sheeting and would usually take Coral's van to bury them in one of four locations. A boat shed, a beach on the Bolivar Peninsula, which is in the Galveston Bay, sort of by Crystal Beach, a wooded area near Lake Sam Rayburn, which is on the way to Jasper, where his family had a log cabin, or a beach in Jefferson County near Port Arthur. Henley, enticed by the crime and money, then brought Coral, his friend Frank Aguire, who worked at Long John Silver's at the time. Henley met Frank after his shift ended and brought him back to the party, where Coral and Brooks were waiting. A little different than their usual get high and pass out trick, they decided to play a game of who can get out of the handcuffs. Aguire lost, never seeing it coming and the handcuffs staying on until after his dying breath. Side note, Long John Silver's is the only fast food place I would ever venture to buy fish from because, you know, it's like their specialty. And oh my goodness, their batter is delicious. I don't care about hush puppies and a lot of people like them from there, but if they can give me all those little extra fried bits along with my fish, I am a happy human being. But back to these assholes. Henley used what he had to make money, no matter who he was hurting in the process. Needless to say, his circle of friends was growing less and less. Mark Scott fought for his life, grabbing a knife that the trio left in his reach and stabbing Coral with it. Since Mark was restricted, the knife barely broke Coral's skin, basically just ripping his shirt. But at least he didn't die without effort to save himself. And once Henley grabbed a 22 pistol and pointed it at him, he stopped fighting, eventually being strangled to death by a cord. By this time, the trio had a system down and were pretty organized for a group of psychopaths. It was late 1972, and they brought 17-year-old Billy Bulch to the gruesome murder scene. Billy used to help Coral's mother sell candy door-to-door. Along with Billy was his buddy Johnny DeLone, 16 years old. As if to add insult to injury, or in case one son being murdered wasn't bad enough, the trio also later grabbed Billy's younger brother, Michael Balch, who was trying to get to Baton Rouge to see his wife and brand new baby. Next was Homer Garcia. He was not from the neighborhood, but was attending a driver's ed class with Henley. Two young boys who had moved into the apartments across the street from where Henley lived were taken next. Rusty Branch and 15-year-old Billy Lawrence, who Coral apparently took a great liking to, keeping him alive for days. When Billy was writing to his father, he knew he was going to die and made sure his parents knew how much he loved them. That's so sad. On a different spectrum, Coral did not like Rusty at all. 
and even castrated him, burying his genitals next to his body. He was the only victim that that was done to. It was now the summer of 1973, and Coral moved to Pasadena, Texas, a southern suburb of Houston that is closer to the coast, to take up residence in his father's home after his father had moved in with his new wife. Coral had started an appetite in himself that he could not quench any longer. And between the start of June and beginning of August 1973, Coral killed eight more boys. Five of these boys were from the Heights like the others. Still no police or investigations into these lost boys. No answers were given to all the parents looking for their missing children. They were all still runaways. Again, this was just a different time, although this is still a hard stigma to push past currently with young adolescents and adults that go missing. Many that go missing will remain as runaways until you can prove otherwise, despite what witnesses, friends, and family may state on the matter. This is something that desperately needs to change. Now, I've researched this a lot, and the final number of accounted victims ranges from 28 to 32 victims. Those are just the ones that we know of. And after reading through the testimonies from Henley's, from Henley and Brooks, the count I am seeing is 30 from what they spoke up about at least. Again, this number could be padded or far less than what the real count was. After all, who's to say that Coral only abducted, tortured, and murdered boys that Brooks and Henley brought to him? Nobody. That too. We will never know the final count because we will never get the chance to speak to Coral about this. He is dead. Here's how it happened, and I really doubt he saw it coming. On August 7th, 1973, eight years to the day from when I was born, Henley showed up at Coral's house with his friend Tim Curley and Tim's girlfriend, Rhonda Williams. FYI, Rhonda had previously dated Frank Aguirre before Carl had him abducted and murdered. She was not the luckiest of ladies in the Heights. According to Tim's account after, that's right folks, he lives. So you can breathe a little bit more right here. Henley told him that he didn't think that Frank was ever coming back and he should not keep waiting for his return. He had no idea that he had inside information on why Frank would never be returning home. Supposedly, Henley brought his friends to Corals that night to just hang out, not for any other purposes. Coral did not get that memo. The three kids started huffing paint and passed out, launching Coral into attack mode the morning of August 8th, 1973. Like I said before, he had created an appetite he could no longer satisfy. Not normal. Coral hogtied Henley up with Tim and Rhonda as well this time. After kicking Tim repeatedly, Coral drug Henley into the kitchen to yell at him for bringing a female into his house. Henley swore he did not mean for it to be a paid gig and offered to kill Rhonda in penance for his mistake. Coral accepted his offer and untied him. They both walked back into the living room where Tim and Rhonda were tied up. Coral had his 22 pistol in hand while Henley had an 18-inch blade. Tim and Rhonda were drugged to the bedroom and placed onto the torture boards. Then, Coral began to sexually assault Tim. As usual, the plastic sheeting covered the floor for the victims to be wrapped in afterwards. When Rhonda came to, her clothes be when Rhonda came to, her clothes being cut from her body and seeing her boyfriend being raped, 
she began to beg Henley, her friend, to spare her life. This was the last straw for Henley, and he snapped, grabbing the twenty-two from Coral and aimed it at him. Apparently, he was said to have claimed that he, quote, can't go on any longer. He couldn't have Coral kill all of his friends, after all. Calling his bluff, Coral approached the mentally unstable child and begged him, Kill me, Wayne! So Henley pulled the trigger on the same gun Coral had used to shoot so many innocent young boys. He shot multiple times at his mentor, killing him and stopping any future murders from happening. Henley then freed Tim and Rhonda, calling the police to report the murder right after. Rhonda stated that whatever evil was in Wayne, there was still some good in him, and finally the good won. Wayne saved my life, and he saved Tim's too. Wayne killed the devil. As much as I agree with her to an extent, I also ask, at what cost? She didn't fully understand his involvement in the torture, rape, and murder of many innocent boys. Yes, he killed a horrible man. Yes, he put a stop to what could have gone on for a very long time. Who knows how many people Coral would have eventually taken from this world. But he also enabled him to keep doing the evil things for far too long. The aftermath brought confessions and convictions for Brooks and Henley. They are both serving life sentences in Texas jails. The Lost Boys were almost all accounted for in Coral's victim pool. Who's to say that others were not a part of it as well? To know all the answers would only be so sweet. Speaking of sweet, let's talk sugar, the main ingredient in candy. I'm one of the fortunate ones, one of the people in the world who's like, ugh, about sweets. I don't really like or eat candy much. I barely eat chocolate, mostly because I don't like it. I'm a salts person. I do, however, really like dark chocolate. But a candy bar could last me over a year. That's just how much I eat it. When I was a kid, my parents would buy us those solid Easter bunnies, the chocolate ones for Easter. And by the time the next Easter rolled around, I would not be done with the previous year's chocolate Easter bunny. I would still have at least a fourth of the bunny left, usually the legs, and would be riddled with light brown age spots on the chocolate. I would toss the old one and start on the next one. If we're talking jelly or gummy candies, however, I tend to go towards them a lot more. But still, it will take me four times as long to eat them as most people. Don't put a bag of chips in front of me though, I will annihilate it. For instance, a month ago, a friend of mine brought me back some Birdie Bots Every Flavor Jelly Beans from Orlando. Refer back to my mention of Harry Potter obsession at the start of this episode. and. I'm still eating them. And that includes the night when my goddaughter came over and ate half the box because she noticed it on my counter. So let's talk about candy again for a moment. It's sugar. Seriously, folks, it's sugar dissolved in water and placed into different forms, for the most part. Remember last episode when I taught you how to make rock candy? Remember how it was literally just dissolving sugar into water? Not kidding, guys. Candy is pure sugar. Does it say fat-free on the label? Well, that's a crock of crap. Maybe not directly, but sugar turns into fat, so don't listen to that. 
As a member of a marketing team, trust me, read the label, understand the ingredients, and know what you are putting into your body. What is a healthier option for you if you're going down the candy and sugar route? Peanut M&Ms, the best M&Ms in my opinion. Snickers, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, Dark Chocolate Bites by Endangered Species. I had never heard of those before, but you can find them on Amazon. They are low in sugar due to the high level of cocoa, or is it cacao? Cacao, cacao. And they're also high in fiber for a chocolate. And unreal milk chocolate gems. These are basically M&Ms with no artificial stuff and can also be found on Amazon. Not joking, these Unreal Milk Chocolate Gems are number one on most lists for healthiest candies. And finally, not a joke, not a joke folks, Blow Pops. Red or green tongues aside, these suckers are practical for non-chocolate loving folks. On the top of the unhealthy candy list, you can find candy corn. Yuck, I mean honestly guys, these are literally melted sugar with food coloring. Smarties also pure sugar gummy bears oh, the knife stab in my heart as i adore gummy bears so much jelly beans i mean come on is this list trying to kill me by removing the few things i actually like and airheads which shouldn't be much of a surprise even though they are really good and you know what what is that mystery flavor instead of indulging in these sweet concoctions Try curbing your sweet tooth with fruit. That's right, fruit. They are full of natural sugars and will curb those cravings so you don't send unneeded inches directly to your love handles. Yogurt is also a good alternative because they have many sweet flavors and it's good for you as well. This does not mean you get froyo and load it with chocolate, sprinkles, gummy bears, and such. That takes away from the entire point. Also, try Bark Thins. They are amazing, are loaded with healthy items, and are usually lower in sugar and sadness than your typical candy bars. I personally adore the ones with pumpkin seeds in them because they're dark chocolate, and they add this saltiness to the chocolate, which I really like. There are a bunch of healthy protein bars, like Kind Bars, which totally helped me out in a bind. The key here is to read labels and compare sugar levels. I know, reading labels is not fun. But once you do it and you know them, you won't have to do it again. I know this is probably TMI, but on my lady time, I do crave chocolate and Kind has these healthy dark chocolate bars that I add to my lunches, which help me in my time of need. They are healthy, have what I need at that moment, act as a dessert, and don't leave me with guilt at a time when I feel bloated and less pretty already. Ladies, We all deserve that. You can even turn squash into a healthy dessert. My point is, don't settle. Strive to learn and grow. Develop your healthy and delicious recipe books so you don't turn to the bad things like candy corn in your time of need. Not seeking out candy may have saved many boys in this sad story from a horrible outcome to their two young lives. After Coral's arrest, his friends, family, and coworkers were shocked. They all claimed that he was the perfect gentleman. He was smart, clean cut, a great tenant, well-dressed, and as bad for you as sugar is. I guess it's true that not everything that looks good is good for you. To be sure that I am not in any way glorying what these three horrible human beings did, 
I want to remind you of the name of each victim that is accounted for. Jeff Conan, James Glass, Danny Yates, Donald Waldrop, Jerry Waldrop, Randall Harvey, David Hillegist, Reuben Haney, Frank Aguire, Mark Scott, Billy Bulch, Johnny DeLone, Michael Bulch, Homer Garcia, Rusty Branch, Billy Lawrence, and although they did not die, Tim Curley and Rhonda Williams are also victims. As are Brooks and Haney, as are Brooks and Henley. I know that what they did was horrible, but they too were victims who fell prey to quarrel. Also, if this story matches a per missing person that you, your family, or a loved one knows of, please reach out to the Houston Police Department. We don't want any lost boys to stay on Neverland. It's time to bring them all back home. Until next time, stay sweet and have a great week. Fork You is written and produced by me. If you want to show me some love, look on down there and give me a little five-star action. You can also head over to my Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can become a donator. Want to stay up to date with me? Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fork You the Pod. Stay fabulous. Go out this weekend and get forked up. <laughs>